Well, this is Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Year. I am Jim Grant, and with me, as always, is Eric Whitehead at the Control Panel, and the great Evan Lorenz, Deputy Editor of Grants, and we have a guest today. And that guest is none other than Bruce Greenwald. Words of the investor Seth Klarman, Bruce Greenwald is the scary smart professor at Columbia who professes value investing. He's an author and uh, his, uh, he's also a participant in the buy low, sell high profession, being connected with First Eagle. And uh, he is a former electrical engineer from uh, Bell Labs of all places. So Bruce, welcome. I wanted to um, say a few words by way of preface. Uh, this program is brought to you as is customary in these difficult days by love and youth and spring and by Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Now, apropos of uh, love and youth and spring and difficult times, I would like to begin by announcing the entry into the world of Elizabeth Barbara Turner, who is the fourth child of our eldest child, uh, Emily Grant, and with Grant Turner, we have another grandchild. So bravo, Emily and Matt, another voice in the choir. So Congratulations. This, yeah, so this isn't all bad, this, uh, this world we live in by no means. And I would also like to announce a few other hopeful signs. First of all, I can look out my window and see Fort Cynthia. That's good, right? That's bullish. And let's see, what else? Oh, yes, the New York Post published uh, two days ago a story about uh, New Yorkers reacting to uh, the mayor's solicitation of text messages ratting out their neighbors uh, for failing to comply with regulations. And the reaction of New Yorkers to this uh, request uh, takes the form of uh, obscene pictures uh, involving, yes, the unzipping of one's trousers directed to the mayor himself. And apparently, such was the volume of these texts that the police department was overwhelmed and the uh, Ratting out project has been set back, technologically speaking. So that's another, to me, hopeful sign of this day and age. And I have two more, Evan and Bruce, and then you can add yours. I hope you will. One is the opportunity for listening to new things. Thanks to Sirius FM for satellite radio, I have fallen in love with a singer named Veronica Swift, not to be confused with the more popular Taylor. Veronica Swift is a jazz singer. And everyone has to go and listen to uh, Pennies from Heaven, Veronica Swift. And the second is the Rossini cello duet. And what else do I have for you? I guess that's that's kind of it. I, Evan, have you been, uh, I don't know, have any discoveries of, or any uh, new things that have come into your life thanks to this nuisance? I'm struggling to think at the moment. Uh, I've been working from home for the last month and a half. Well, you're a photographer. Frankly, have you been able to, to uh, advance your craft? Your advocate? I think my cat and my wife are tired of me and my camera. <laughs> Bruce, Bruce Greenwald, <laughs> yes. you're a man of Renaissance interest. Surely you are putting these days of self-isolation into great productive use. What oh, you... for me, this is a gift from the God. Nobody can get a hold of me. Nobody can ask me to be any place. I completely control my time, and I get an enormous amount of work done. So as crazy as the public response has been to this, for me, it couldn't have worked out better. Yeah. Well, see, there's well, we call it around grants, looking, uh, as always, for hopeful signs in difficult situations. People call it the value restoration project, from the market point of view, which brings us to Bruce and his uh, metier. And it is thanks to, uh, to Neil Yajakawa, a listener of ours podcast, who uh, that Bruce is here. So thank you, Neil, for suggesting it. Great idea. Bruce, is, uh, I know that you do this for a living, that is discussing value, and you do it mostly in front of a classroom. 
classes and your books, but we're going to have a freestyle conversation about this. I wanted to begin, I know you have an agenda. I wanted to begin by asking you something that um, has uh, preoccupied us at Grants with respect to the valuation of equities. We have lived in a time of uh, uniquely low interest rates, uh, lowest in 4,000 years, according to authorities, Sidney Homer and Dick Silla. And we have lived in a time of, I would say, unique intrusion, to be sure, a welcome for the most part by most investors, intrusion of the central banks into our markets. The credit has been free and easy as evidenced by the record high leverage of American corporations. So Bruce Greenwald, tell us, how might the monetary and interest rate situation play into our collective perception of equity value? Okay. So let me, can I talk about those separately? Because I think they're quite different questions. Um, okay. So let's start with just the interest rate situation. And, you know, the theory is that the lower interest rates are, the greater the value of future income streams, and therefore the greater the value of assets should be. That does not seem to be fully absorbed by equities historically under any circumstances. Now, here I'm only going to speak to the last 200 years of interest rates because that's the only period over which we've had anything like public equity markets. So for the previous 3,800 years, I have nothing to say. But, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, we had strongly negative real interest rates. And, you know, Admittedly, it was a time of significant risk perception, but at that time, as you remember, Jim, stock prices were incredibly low. So valuations relative to, I think, any sensible measure of future earnings were very attractive. Now, this time around, the interest rates have been low for a long time. And values have stabilized and they're not, you know, where you think they should be. And I'm going to give you a couple of numbers. So right now, um, the indices, at least in the United States, are trading at like 18 times uh, future earnings. If you think that there's a 2% nominal drift at a minimum in earnings and plus whatever the benefit of reinvestment is, you're talking about a 6.5% return going forward. And that's a number that has been there for a fairly long time. And of course, we've had the low interest rates for a long time. That number, if you think real in nominal interest rates are about 1.5%, is about 4.3 times nominal interest rates. The normal number, which is a nominal equity return of about 9% a year against long-term safe interest rates of 3%, is about 3.3. So, you know, valuations are, relative to interest rates, not particularly stretched. And in practice, they're stretched relative to historical standards. But again, not by as much as you would think. So the interest rate effect, both historically when we've looked at them and what we've seen, both, by the way, in the United States and Europe, have not been fully embedded in valuation. And I, I have no good explanation for why, but it's been there for a long time. Yeah. I mean, do you have a sense of why the equity markets have not fully responded? I do not. Yeah, uh, I no, did. but Bruce, I do have one question for you. You, you use the valuation based off of forward earnings. And if I'm looking at kind of a lot of companies I follow, earnings are about to fall precipitously. How far forward are you looking in terms of earnings? Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at sort of basically long horizon, stable earnings from the economy. You know, I, again, so you're looking at sustainable earnings today. And there is a question of how long this recession is going to last. And the government seems to be doing things that'll prolong it as much as possible per dollar that they're spending. But still, you know, you're talking about maybe a 10% loss in the discounted value, the long-term discounted value of future earnings, even at higher discount rates than the sort of 
You know, Bruce, the, uh, the, uh, the great 18th century uh, philosopher David Hume said uh, that uh, something to this effect, that no investor will uh, settle for low interest when he can have high profits, nor low profits when he can have high interest. And one of the paradoxes of the present day of low, perhaps suppressed interest rates is that corporate profits as a percentage of the GDP are very, very high. And yet these interest rates are persistently and perhaps artificially low. Yeah, I think that's what we're talking about. And that's not fully embedded in stock market market prices. I'm not, but you know, uh, I have to tell you, we were uh, worked together on was the sixth edition of right. security analysis. But during the depression, certainly interest rates were very low, and that was not in itself enough to lift equity prices, which were themselves at rock bottom. Okay, so that's another history. I agree with you. That's another historical instance where the so interest it's not rates positive. Like, these rates are not, yeah, not, not, not mechanically dispositive interest rates. Bruce, what about leverage? Okay, well, okay, I was going to talk about if you want to talk about monetary policy, or well, all right, let's talk about leverage. I'll I'll be obedient to authority here. The thing about leverage is that you have to be a little careful about corporate versus household versus government leverage. Corporate leverage, if you think that these interest rates are sustainable, and a lot of it, by the way, is very cheap long-term debt, and there's a lot of cash on these uh, on these balance sheets. I don't get a sense that as a sort of a you know a subtraction or you know commitment against which you're comparing earnings that the cost of carrying the debt is particularly high for the corporate sector. I think that's not so true for households and for governments and. I'm not going to talk about governments because government behavior, like what we've just talked about with interest rates and you know valuations, is inexplicable. But with households, there's a very different problem, and it doesn't, at least in the United States, which is that the overall savings rate for U.S. households, and this is a flow, not a stock, is about 7%. The top 20% of households who have about 50% of the income save about 20% of their income. So that's 10% savings rate right there. So to get to 7% overall, the bottom 80% of households has to be dissaving 3% a year. That's 3% of 50% of the income, which means that they're spending 106% of their income every year. And you would think that's not sustainable. Whether they have heavy debt or not, that that's just not going to continue. Now, that number before the financial crisis was about 110% of their income. So I think households are at some point going to have to adjust. But it's not so clear to me that firms are in that much trouble in the sense of having to adjust their operations to cover their debt commitments. But Bruce, when you're talking about kind of overrides, if I look at kind of the S&P 500, the largest companies like Apple and Google have extraordinarily large cash balances. And as I scroll down kind of the list into smaller to mid cap, I see companies that are levered anywhere from like, you know, three to seven times. And I read a city note last week saying that their baseline scenario, which assumes I think a two quarter contraction followed by a V-shaped recovery, is that we're going to have a 10% plus default rate on high yield bonds. It does seem to me like there's a great dispersion in terms of corporate health and that there's a long tail of companies that are overlevered and they didn't have the rainy day funds to deal with even a short, sharp down, uh, drawdown in earnings. And if that the recession continues longer than um, kind of a, a two or three quarter affair, you could actually see extraordinarily high bankruptcy numbers in corporations. I, again, I think that, first of all, you know, a lot of the government intervention has actually been targeted at preventing bankruptcies. That is basically extending those loans to small business. So, I mean, I don't know the detail of, you know, the distribution of debt. But I think the other thing you ought to think about is that in a manufacturing economy, 
um, when you have a recession, you have substantial price reductions that go on. And typically, if you look at the fluctuations in profitability in a recession, they are extreme. The auto companies, for example, uh, when things turn bad, profits would go negative. If you look today at some of these industrial companies, if they are sensible so that, in fact, they have local service-based monopolies, local software and knowledge-based monopolies. You see that they suffer nothing like that degree of profit reduction. Now, for the small companies, that may be true. But on the other hand, the government seems to be committed either through the banks or directly to preventing widespread bankruptcies. Now, having said that, I think that short of bankruptcy is where the problem is going to lie, because none of these companies are going to be taking on substantial risk as long as they have those kinds of balance sheets. And I think that, you know, giving them debt to carry them over and prevent bankruptcy is not going to change that because they know they're going to have to pay the debt back. So I think people who are counting on a V-shaped uh, recovery are just not considering this, you know, the degree of imbalance that this recession is going to cause. And I guess leverage is an important part of that for small uh, businesses. And therefore, the extent to which they're going to want to restore those balance sheets out of, because they can't sell equity, which is out of current cash flow, and the extent to which they're going to be reducing investment and not hiring people back and trying to sort of increase their cash flow. So I think that the story that I see, and you know, again, you guys probably have a more detailed view of this is one in which the bankruptcies are not the issue, but which because the equity is going to be impaired by this event and is being impaired by this event, it's going to be a long, slow recovery. And if Citibank thinks there's going to be a V-shaped recovery, I think they're dreaming. Well, we did have a V-shaped recovery uh, exactly 100 years ago from the Depression in 1920-21, but that was a, a wholly different uh, setup with respect to uh, the free working and the price mechanism and the flexibility of wage rates, et cetera. However, Bruce, Bruce Greenwald, that is not on the agenda. What is on the agenda is uh, your view of value and uh, what has happened uh, to the reputation of the value tribe, and you are known uh, quite properly as someone who has amalgamated the uh, the best of Ben Graham and uh, Warren Buffett and little Michael Porter and, and a lot of uh, Bruce Greenwald. And um, would you help us kind of introductory way to understand how the evolved value investor might go looking for things to do in this very, very interesting environment? Okay. So I think that you know, as you know, value has not done well. And sort of primitive value, especially, which is just low PE, low market to book, has not done well for almost 10 years now. I think that the obvious cause of that is we are shifting from a real asset heavy manufacturing and industrial economy to a software service driven economy where really most of the capital is intangible. And you see that on the balance sheet. So people who are going to try and look at traditional tangible book value are going to miss most of where the value is across firms. And the ones who sort of look cheap on tangible book value are going to have very bad intangibles and are not going to do particularly well. So I think it's much harder to assess asset values today because there's so much in intangibles than it was historically. And I think that's affected the value community if you don't adapt. I think what goes along with that is that a lot of the accumulation of intangibles, you know, acquiring a book of business, developing a product portfolio gets expensed. It doesn't appear as investment. It gets expensed and therefore not included 
in profits so that, again, if you want to do a proper profit calculation, you've got to sort of add back that investment. And again, that's a complicated process. So I think the traditional metrics that in an industrial economy, manufacturing economy, people depended on as value investors are just not there anymore. Bruce, and that means you? that they're going to have to construct income statements and balance sheets for themselves. May I ask this with respect to uh, the apparent, uh, some would say, obsolescence, uh, conventional uh, balance sheet analysis? It would seem that um, the company's best position today are those who have a lot of cash and in relation to selling uh, general and administrative expenses, SG&A, the, the cost of uh, turning on the lights and operating a business, and uh, especially in Japan, the uh, the uh, the reputation of the Japanese for being such prehistorically minded hoarders of cash, that perception perhaps is going to be revised because uh, not a very important criterion of surviving what may prove to be a depression certainly is now a, uh, unfolding as a steep recession. Those companies, the ones that have amassed cash and perhaps in the in the manner that Ben Graham would have prescribed are kind of looking good. Yeah, you know, I, I absolutely agree with you, but you got a problem of causality there. I mean, the people who accumulate cash in Japan or any place are the people that earn very high returns on capital, especially, you know, relative to the investments that they have to make to either sustain or grow the business. Well, those are the people with strong franchises. And, you know, because they have pricing power, because they are not subject to competition as a rule, when things go bad, they don't go so bad. So actually, if you look at the financial crisis, Japan suffered one of the largest contractions in output in the world. Uh, as a manufacturing economy, that ought not to be a surprise. But bankruptcies didn't occur to any degree in Japan that I'm aware of. And I think partly that's because there's substantial government support, but partly that there is a lot of uh, successful Japanese companies that dominate niche markets and have the barriers to entry that sustain them. So I, I'd be really careful about the causality mm. uh, between cash and uh, survival. So the reason Apple has a ton of cash, the reason Google has a ton of cash, the reason Microsoft has a ton of cash is that monopolies are still really attractive things to have. Yeah. And it gives you a lot of cash. Okay. So the, uh, Go ahead. Sorry, sorry no, Bruce, please proceed. Okay. So let me get back to where I think value investing has to go. I think you're going to have to be able to reconstruct. I mean, look, the laws of economics have not been changed. If you have no barriers to entry and no assets, you're not going to have, in the face of competition, significant profits. So it's still going to be important what the assets are, whether they're intangible or not. And you're still going to want to, if you're going to judge management and the economic position of firms, going to want to be able to compare that to earnings. So you're going to have to be able to do those calculations. And that means understanding the intangibles and understanding the dynamic of income statement investment. And I think to do that, and I think this is the biggest change that successful value investors have adapted to, you've got to be a specialist. Now, that is, you've got to understand particular industries really, really well. And I think that the, you know, the logical imperative there is absolutely clear. I mean, we know that there are two sides to every trade, that every time I buy something thinking it's a good idea, on average, somebody else is selling it to me thinking it's not a good idea or selling it as a good idea. And if I've been doing onshore South Texas Gulf Coast oil leases my whole life, and you come down from New York or you come in from San Francisco and buy an oil lease from me, 
Who do you think made money in that transaction? And I think the value discipline enabled people uh, historically to avoid that difficult problem. But I think increasingly, they're going to have to be specialized. And that is the one piece of advice I would give value investors. One imperative during a a time like this, the imperative to sell because uh, of a call in your cash because of uh, sheer simple necessity, necessity which perhaps is inflamed by a sense of fear and need of panic, which brings me to a question about uh, the present day. And uh, so is is a value investor better advised to uh, uh, to look for the kind of competitively advantaged businesses in which you have had said so much to say over the years at reasonable prices uh, and or might they go looking for the so-called cheap and disgusting kind that uh, the covid-19 panic has has felled you know the energy the hospitality travel and retail stuff where does cheap and disgusting uh, figure <laughs> into, into your let's be clear whatever you buy The critical thing is the price you pay. So if cheap and disgusting is cheap enough relative to disgusting, that those are going to be good investments. But I think there are two things that you have to keep in mind here. The first thing is that in a very difficult time like this, whether it's because they've accumulated cash or because they're not subject to competition when there's huge excess capacity and they have stronger underlying economic positions, the franchise businesses are going to do better. So if you are risk averse, that's, I think, almost where you're going to have to go. But having said that, I think you have to analyze industry by industry where things are going. So Energy looks cheap, but if you think about, uh, you know, the long-term prospects for energy, on the one hand, you've got the fact that for 200 years now, improvements in extraction technology have, you know, outperformed the exhaustion of readily accessible deposits. And raw material prices, including oil and energy, have characteristically gone down for a long time. And you don't want to bet on that continuing. The second thing is that oil in particular has a very peculiar price dynamic, which is that, you know, 70% of oil reserves are controlled by governments. And governments have very perverse supply responses. I mean, you know, they're like the Delta House and Animal House. They need the dues, man. So when prices go down, they actually try and pump more. And when prices go up, they're perfectly willing to pump less oil. And as prices are low, that's going to kill them. And you see that in the inability of these guys to get together in the face of these guys being Russia and Saudi Arabia and others in the face of these very low prices. On the other hand, we know that, you know, the lifting cost for oil at the margin is somewhere between 40 and $60, depending on, you know, on average. And, you know, how is oil, how are oil reserves priced relative to that? I don't think you're going to understand unless you're a real expert in energy. So I think, again, you come back to the case that in some cases, it's going to be the ugly and how to favor that is significantly cheaper. In other cases, it's going to be the safer sort of franchise businesses that are cheaper. But unless you understand those businesses in detail, you're not going to be able to tell and you're not going to be able to apply simple price to book or price earnings ratios to that. Because as I say, the traditional sort of accounting metrics just don't tell you that much anymore. So I know this is an unsatisfactory answer, but I think there is no simple answer to this. And if you talk about things like hospitality, those markets are local. So hospitality in Houston may look much worse than hospitality in New York or in other places. So I think, again, 
you may have to be a geographic specialist. And I think trying to get an idea that, yes, this is what to do under these circumstances is pretty is a pretty bad idea. Bruce, of, of, of all the companies you've studied, and there certainly have been many, is there any one that uh, would stand as the avatar of the durable, competitive, advantage, enhanced I, business? Well, okay. So let, let's talk about, you know, good businesses. And I think you got to be a little careful about that. So when you talk about a competitive advantage or a moat, because it's really Really, an incumbent competitive advantage is the same as a barrier to entry, which is the same as the moat. You can talk about the strength of the moat, the durability of the moat, and the value of the moat, and those are all separate issues. So if you talk about the strength of the moat, which is how hard is it for an entrant to get into the business, there's a fairly straightforward measure of that. So if you're going to compete with Coca-Cola in any locality, because of the economies of scale and bottling, distribution, and advertising, you're going to have to get to 25% market share. Market share changes hands in a competitive environment for caffeinated soft drinks at two-tenths of a percent per year. So to get to that 25%, that is a 125-year moat. And I don't know of any moat that is wider than that one. The second thing is that, you know, tastes for food and beverages are much more stable, obviously, than the level of economies of scale and customer captivity in technology industries or industries that are subject to change. So again, I think you're looking at the Nestle's and the Coke with their distribution monopolies, and physical distribution is going to be the thing that is most persistently advantaged in the face of developing technology, so that the durability of their economies of scale, and I think the durability of the customer captivity is going to be higher. So I think you're looking in both those terms at Coke and Nestle. On the other hand, the value of the franchise depends on how fast they're growing. So Coke and Nestle are not going to grow as rapidly as some of these other franchises. So I think that if you want strength and durability, you're thinking in terms of heavy consumer goods with local distribution monopolies and a lot of customer captivity and stability in customer behavior and stability in the economics of distribution. Where is oh, Amazon? Uh, uh, sorry, uh, proceed, Evan. I was kind of curious if you could mesh this with what you said earlier about what has been valued for the last decade. Because the two companies you talked about are kind of the traditional like manufacturers that I think a value investor, you know, 20, 30, 40, 70 years ago would be familiar with. But the value that you've been talking about for most of this call has been companies that are heavy in intangibles who spend up front for software and other costs that might have been capitalized had they been manufacturers. And you're talking about a whole different paradigm. How do you kind of measure your view on, I guess, durable, valuable franchises versus is what you think value is today. Okay. I, I think you got to be uh, really careful. I mean, if you look at the capital intensity of Nestle or Coke, it's very low. I mean, relative to the volume that gets pumped through those bottling plants, the cost of the equipment is quite low. So actually on the traditional spectrum, I mean, if you think of and here I'm going back to the old pre-globalization days. But if you think of the dominant returns that General Motors earned in the 50s, 60s, and 70s when they were earning 46% on capital, they were very capital-intensive businesses. And in ter- and relative to those, the food companies like Coke, like Kraft in those days, like Nestle, are actually uh, pretty low capital intensity. I mean, you're talking about between working and fixed capital, depending on how they organize it, maybe. 30%, 25%, as opposed to 60 or 70 in the big capital intensive businesses. Now, when you talk about the new technology businesses, I think the answer is that in that case, 
obviously the tangible assets are almost nothing. Although I think the intangible assets, because technology changes, require a lot of investment. They actually tend to depreciate faster than people think they do. And therefore, you've got a lot of depreciation that you've got to sort of replace with replacement CapEx in either R&D or customer development or uh, something like that. So I think that, yes, those are different. But if you think about those businesses, they are highly susceptible to changes in the cost of entry that, uh, you know, all of a sudden it could be a lot cheaper to develop software to compete with Microsoft. And, you know, as you know, as taste changes, uh, people, uh, you know, want different things or they get used to what they already have and they get more sophisticated in the use of that. I think you got a problem. So if you look at Apple, for example, I don't think Apple is going to be the kind of profitable company 20 years from now that it is today. So if you ask me about the strength of the mode and the durability, I think that it's low for Apple. But if you look at the value of the franchise, it's pretty high at the moment. I think for Coca-Cola, you know, it's on the low end and of capital intensity, but on the high end of returns on capital. I mean, returns on capital, especially once they spun off the bottlers, are absurd. And it's got a lot of stability. So you're going to get durability and strength, but it's not going to grow as rapidly. I mean, I think those are distinctions it's really important to make when you invest in franchises. Bruce, tell us about Amazon. <laughs> you want to know how much money I lost shorting it? <laughs> well, just round it off. We have to know the exact I, Well, I'm not going to give you the number, but trust me, it is spectacular. I think that in the old days, that was a bet on whether or not Amazon was going to develop the physical distribution capacity to establish itself in a durable position like, and here we're talking about Amazon uh, web distributor, in a durable position like, say, you know, the Coca-Cola's of the world. The reason I thought it was worth shorting in those days was if you read what they were doing, they had no very focused geographic strategy. They thought they were going all over the world. And, you know, these distribution monopolies, the physical distribution uh, economies of scale, are all local, of course. But since then, I think they've gotten much smarter about that. I think they've focused much more on the United States. And to the extent that they focused overseas, they've been much more careful about focusing on certain particular markets that they're trying to dominate. And I think they're getting closer to being able to do that. So I was just wrong about their you know, their, their geographic strategy, which seemed to me to be very misguided. Uh, and they have changed that. Yeah. And I think for the better. On the other hand, do I think that 30 years or 40 years from now, they are going to be the single dominant web retailer? I would be really surprised. Yeah, I almost think Jeff Bezos would agree with you. I think he has talked about the uh, the mortality of even such a franchise, if we use that word, in the presence of Bruce Greenwald as, as he has. Bruce, I want to ask you this, perhaps in, uh, if not in closing, towards the, towards the end of our discussion. That is, you were an electrical engineer and uh, achieved a BS in that and an MS. And then you chose to go off in the direction of uh, economics and more specifically of investing. And I want to ask you, how does a mind so well attuned to science and the rigor of electrical engineering, how do you compare the vocation you have chosen? What is different about it? What is more satisfying and what perhaps is less satisfying? Okay. So if you look at going from electrical engineering to economics first, as a traditional economics, to sort of business strategy and finance second, and then to value investing, you're actually getting the same intellectual balance. So a large part of it, which is the quantitative part of it, is all applied math. But the reality is that you're not going to be a really good electrical engineer. 
you're not going to be a really good economist and you're not going to be a really good investor if you don't understand the real world context in which that math is being applied. And that was the attraction. So when I started out, it was exciting to think about designing things uh, with newly available technology. So I was really, you know, I got my, I basically graduated from MIT in 1966 when the digital revolution was really just starting. And the idea of applying those capabilities to a whole lot of functions in the world and thinking through how you were going to do that was an interesting challenge because it had a strong quantitative uh, component and it had a strong sort of qualitative understanding of what these machines were supposed to do component. When you come to economics, there are a lot, especially today, of mathematically very uh, well-trained and very sophisticated economists who don't understand crap about the real world in which they operate and have no appreciation for economic history of the kind that I think, Jim, you have and that Grant's interest rate observer brings to the table. So if you in high school were the best historian and the best mathematician in your high school, that was just an obvious direction to go. And the, then the next step, and I'd always been a crazy investor, but it was not till I grew up, which didn't happen till very late, that I became a sensible investor. But, you know, applying it to particular industries and particular companies with the history that's important and the complexity that's important. So, you know, understanding the basic mathematics of what you have to do, but having a clear idea of how you're going to apply that, I think is an extraordinarily interesting challenge. And the nice thing about investing is there are new industries and new businesses every day. So this is a business I would recommend to everybody. Bruce, with your insight uh, on uh, economists not understanding how the world works, I think Gallup came up with a poll today saying that the U.S. public has more faith in the Fed than any time since the Greenspan era. <laughs> That just says much more about the public than the Fed. I mean, you have, I mean, all right, so we started with monetary policy, and maybe we can talk about that briefly, because I did, with Joe Stiglitz, write a book about uh, monetary policy. And the fact of the matter is, if you look at monetary policy back in the 1960s and 70s, it is extraordinarily powerful. So that to give you the worst example of that, in 1966, and it operated with a one-year lag, in 1966, there was a significant contraction in the rate of monetary expansion. It basically came down from 6% to 2%. And this is just straight M1 expansion. The next year, which is 1967, which is the year of the most rapid ramp up of the Vietnam War, 19, nominal GDP growth in 1967 was lower than nominal GDP growth in 1966. That that monetary policy overwhelmed the effect of an extraordinary expansion of what, by modern standards, is a really serious war. If you go to the 90s and you look at Alan Greenspan and what he tried to do, what you see is that nominal GDP growth is extraordinarily stable and monetary policy is extraordinarily, un extraordinarily unstable. So I think that what's going on is that between the 60s and 70s and the 90s, the power of monetary policy has been completely eviscerated, that they've disconnected the steering wheel from the wheels of the car. The car, in the absence of effective monetary policy, tends to be pretty stable. And this happens when Alan Greenspan steps into the driver's seat. He's like my daughter at Disneyland. He's moving the wheel all over the place. The car stays on the track, and he thinks he's a brilliant driver. <laughs> and I think that that's been the record of monetary policy in the financial crisis. And since then, I mean, you, do you see the forecast the Fed makes? 
about what's going to happen to inflation and what's going to happen to growth, and they're consistently wrong. And there's been extraordinary stability in inflation, and there's been across country, in each country extraordinary stability uh, in output that has not been affected by monetary policy. So if I had to summarize this, I'd say that actually what's happened is that historically monetary policy has done a lot of harm, that it hasn't been have any effect for a long time, and therefore it stopped doing harm. And maybe that's why people think it's good. I would say that monetary policy is extraordinarily effective at sowing moral hazard. It is extraordinarily effective at steering behavior towards greater leverage and greater risk-taking. It is extraordinarily effective at suppressing the price mechanism on which capitalism ultimately functions. And through unintended consequences of certainly well-intended acts, it is going to be extraordinarily effective at sowing the seeds of the next crisis because it insists on butting in to suppress the current crisis. I would say that the Federal Reserve is the clear and present danger to investors of all stripes. However, that will end the sermon. And also, it will end the podcast, except Bruce Greenwald, for thanking you for being with us and uh, interrupting your otherwise blissfully unstructured, but no doubt productive days. <laughs> well, it's, it's been, been a pleasure. To talk and to as you. I say, if I was going to do an interruption, I couldn't imagine a more fruitful interruption than this one. Uh, so that I'm, although we disagree, I'm certainly listening to what you have to say and have learned something about small company leverage. So thank you for that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. And on behalf of uh, Elizabeth Barbara Turner and Allied, a sponsor of Love and Youth and Spring, thank you for being with us. And we'll uh, talk to you soon. A Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air.